Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Before we get started with today's episode, I'd like to remind our listeners that you know, our ability to get great guests depends on us getting good ratings and good reviews, etc., on the podcasting apps. The podcasting ecosystem's a little weird that way. So when you're finished listening today, if you like the show, please consider giving us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. And if you have the time, write us a review. It really helps. It lets us keep getting these great guests that make the show so good. Today's guest is a part two with Ian McGilchrist. Just as a reminder, he's an associate fellow of Green Templeton College, Oxford, a fellow of the Royal College of Psychiatrists, and a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. And for many years, he was a clinical psychiatrist. You can learn more about his work at channelmcgilchrist.com. And when I mentioned this is a part two, this is a little unusual part two. You know, regular listeners know sometimes I'll have decided after having read a book that we can't get through it in one episode or on the fly during the episode, the guest and I will make that call. But in this case is a little different. I thought the, the first episode with Ian was actually pretty good. But as I thought about it the weekend afterwards, I realized I really hadn't done justice to the final third of the book. And Ian and I had some dialogue back and forth about various substantive topics about artificial intelligence and consciousness and stuff. I started feeling guilty that I had not really done my usual comprehensive job on the final third of the book. And it's a massive book, 1,200 pages in print, 2,000 pages on Kindle. And trying to pack all that into 90 minutes ended up not doing justice to some of the most interesting stuff. So I reached out to Ian and he very graciously agreed to come back and take another whack at it. So <laughs> welcome back, Ian McGilchrist. Oh, th- thanks, Jim. I'm ready for another whack at it, as you say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of tremendously interesting things I was prepping for this this episode. I realized, you know, even another 90 minutes isn't going to be enough to get to everything, but we're going to hit what we can hit. Mm. Just to wrap up a couple items from last week's show, one, as I fairly often do, I think I, met, I use one of my catchphrases, when I hear the word metaphysics, I reach for my pistol. <laughs> Ian thought that was from Goebbels or Goering or something as a modification of the old one. I hear the word culture, I reach for my pistol. I didn't think so. I looked it up and sure enough, it was Hans Joost, who was a dramatist of, in the 20s, but he was also kind of a bad guy, kind of a fascist. But, <laughs> and then also we talked about Scotch a little bit in the previous episode. I noted that Ian lives on the island of Skye, the home of Talisker, which in the past at least had been one of my least favorite scotches. But that evening I went home and poured myself a triple of Talisker 10 from a bottle I, we had in our Scotch cabinet. And I'll say it had good flavor and good body, and the smoke was not quite as obnoxious as I remembered. And I kind of enjoyed it. But the damn iodine aftertaste kind of lingered for a few hours afterwards. <laughs> so my re- my reaction was, all right, front end pretty good. Back end, I'm not so, not so impressed with it. Something wrong with your bottle, I think, Jim, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> and it's been there for a few years, so who knows. <laughs> but I'm going to try the Talisker 18. See how, uh, let's see what I think about that. That has uh, has been voted the 
best whiskey in the world. So if you don't like that, I can't help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, my regulars is Oban 18, and I like Oban 14 also, but the 18 is like, yeah, you know, orders of magnitude better. And so well, we'll give Talisker one more shot on the 18. We'll get a, re- <laughs> we'll give a report back. <laughs> so again, we're going to get into part three of the matter with things, which is the name of Ian's book. And part three is titled what then is true. And for those who did listen to the previous episode, I'm going to try to steer the conversation to minimize the overlap and focus more on things that we didn't get to in the previous show, but inevitably there'll be some overlap. So apologize in advance. So let's see here. Uh, where's a good place to jump in? You know, last time we talked a bit about time and the, the issues between discrete time and continuous time. And Ian's belief is that continuous time is philosophically important. And I think I pushed back that from the physicist's perspective, we're not yet sure, but the discontinuities are at such a tiny, fine scale, the so-called Planck length, like 40 orders of magnitude smaller than the time it takes light to fly across a proton. Maybe time is discontinuous at that range, or as I like to think, the distinction between continuous and discontinuous disappears into a fog of confusion at that scale. But I think my takeaway is that things that occur at this ultra micro level do not matter at the level of of us. And so if you have some final thoughts on time, we'll then move on to space. Yes, you're you're right in one sense uh, that when we're dealing with daily life, we don't have to be thinking about whether there is continuity or not. And I'm really making a point about the way we think about time. But it's also true that, as I understand from, say, David Tong, who's the professor of physics at Cambridge here, that there is no evidence for discontinuity anywhere in the cosmos, neither in time nor in space and that Planck lengths are an artifact of our ability to measure things. Yeah, I think there's a lot of argument about that. And this is another, I think, theme that's going to come throughout the show today, is that there's a lot of things, particularly in the quantum space, so-called quantum interpretations or quantum foundations, where very peculiarly, even though quantum theory has been the most accurate scientific theory for the last hundred years and can make unbelievably useful predictions about real things like computer chips today would not operate uh, unless quantum mechanics was computationally correct. What it actually means is still in great argument. In fact, there's at least a dozen so-called quantum interpretations, which describe rather different worlds. I mean, radically different worlds. And we'll get into this a little bit in the next comment. And there is zero experimental evidence that allows you to distinguish between these dozen live interpretations. A few interpretations have been knocked off by evidence, but even ones that describe radically, radically different universes, we cannot tell. And I often caution guests to don't don't be picking and choosing quantum interpretations because we don't have a basis to to tell this quantum interpretation from this one, and we'll soon get, get onto that. So we talked about time. Let's move on to space and essentially the quantum nature of reality. As I mentioned, there are these numerous quantum interpretations and even fundamental things like is randomness a fundamental value of the universe or not is actually still in dispute. I think Ian takes the position that randomness is 
a real attribute of the universe. Maybe talk about that a little bit. Well, I take randomness to be an asymptotic element that we can only approach ever nearer to, but never actually achieve, that order is the principle that is visible everywhere, and that true randomness is is not a reality. Although degrees of chaos, degrees of disorder, are very, very important to the functioning of almost anything that we can think of, but especially of life. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. And again, this is a scale issue. You know, at the quantum mechanical level, which you actually do talk about quite a bit in the book, and I think you do come down on the side of stochasticity at the quantum level, that there's a fundamental unpredictability. About 70% of physicists would agree with you that the universe is fundamentally random at the lowest, lowest level, but about 30% disagree. And some of the interpretations of quantum mechanics are still deterministic. The uh, De Broglie Bohm wa- pilot wave theory, for instance, and and that Boogaboo, which we'll talk about later, the quantum metaverse, both are deterministic. But I think you were making the point that at higher scales, other forces come into play that, in some sense, smooth out that that underlying randomness. Is that fair enough? Well, well, uh, I think one has to differentiate between unpredictability and randomness. They're not not not, not equivalent, obviously, and. As I say, systems rely on a degree of something that gets close to randomness, of disorder as well as order. And systems are fragile if they don't have that disorder available within them. And it's certainly true that the chemistry of the cell would not work if it wasn't for what seemed to be at that scale randomness. It requires certain low probability but energetic events to cause reactions to occur, for instance. Well, yes, but again... I, I'm not sure whether we're talking about exactly the same thing because unpredictability, uh, intrinsic unpredictability, is not necessarily the same as complete randomness. So uh, an example I, I rather like of um, unpredictability at, at the non-quantum level is you know, it's a point that's sometimes made that, yes, okay, at some enormously reduced level, you can find unpredictability in a in a... A chain of reactions. You can also do so at the everyday level. And I quote in, in the book a paper by a couple of physicists saying that even at the level of the physical billiard ball, which is often brought up as the metaphor for causality since the 18th century, that the movements of billiard balls on the table become fundamentally unpredictable after a certain number of collisions. And I thought, well, yes, okay, maybe, but you're going to say it's millions or billions of collisions, but in fact, it's eight. And that's uh, yeah, it's called deterministic chaos, and it's one of the most important ideas that most people don't understand, uh, which is that even very simple systems, the so-called three-body problem, for instance, imagine an empty universe with three balls orbiting each other, and this is a very critical distinction. You use the word fundamentally. Actually, it turns out fundamentally at the Newtonian scale, it is theoretically possible to actually predict their trajectories forever. However, and this is so subtly important, as a practical matter, it's impossible because even the tiniest mistakes in measurement of position or velocity very quickly cascade into what's called deterministic chaos, and the system becomes unpredictable. Even systems as well studied as our solar system with really big objects. We think about this as, you know, the clockwork universe. Well, actually, 
the astrophysicists cannot predict the orbits of the planets more than maybe 50 million years out into space, out into time. And it's not, it may have some fundamental randomness to it too, but due to this issue of deterministic chaos, that it's a practical matter, even if the whole universe were made out of computers, you could not do the calculations, even though in principle, it would be possible. Uh, if there were some larger universe with larger computers, maybe, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, fundamental to this conversation, I guess, is the fact that um, I'm not a physicist. So in talking about these matters, and if we're going to talk about the nature of reality, you can't really avoid it. I have run whatever I've written past physicists that I know who contact me, contacted me after reading The Master and His Emissary, um, saying this is incredibly important for our work. And I was a bit surprised. I didn't really expect to get that reaction, but I have. And so before I say anything about these things in writing, I get um, I get them vetted, as it were, by by physicists who know more than I do. Yeah, that's very, and that which is good, of course. But one key thing to remember is that in these fundamental questions, there is split views amongst yeah. physicists. Oh, of course there is, yeah. And which, which I think it's so interesting that these fundamental questions, ma nature refuses to cough up the answer. And I think that alone is actually significant. And that's something I've talked with people like Lee Smolin about. Let's get on to the next one. You, you mentioned Lee Smolin, and he's one of the people that I rely on most heavily in physics. Mm. Yeah, he's been on our show before. In fact, he was my fifth guest way back yonder, and he's going to be back on this summer. We're going to talk about one of his recent papers oh. about time, which will be fun. There we go. So let's move on to, to the next point. You know, this, Some of this is reviewing what we talked about before, but I think this is a new topic. And this is the so-called measurement problem in quantum mechanics. You came down, I think, pretty strongly with the minority of physicists, though not a tiny minority, it might be 15 or 20 percent, who believe that consciousness is somehow entangled with quantum mechanics and the conscious observation of quantum systems is involved in their decoherence, i.e. The, the movement from the quantum state to the classical state. And I would point out that the vast majority of physicists, probably 85%, disagree with that, and that the so-called quantum measurement problem has to do with size and probabilities rather than consciousness. But let's make the argument for how the conscious observer may actually be involved in sort of forming the world as it is. Well, to reiterate, um, Jim, and it may be <laughs> a problem for this particular podcast, I'm not a physicist. My book doesn't depend on physics. It's just that the conclusions I've come to through neuroscience and philosophy are borne out by certain fairly strong strands in philosophy. And it was really drawing attention to that more than anything that I meant to do in, in this, the chapters on time and space, which do obviously involve physics. But um, yeah, I, mean, I don't know how minor it is. You may be measuring these things <laughs> more accurately than I do. But my impression is that it's not a controversial position that consciousness is involved with matter and that changing one's attention, moving one's consciousness, as it were, can also produce changes in whatever is observed. I like to think of the, the, the distinction as being perhaps not between quantum and classical, but simply the matter of the collapse of a field into a measurable point for the purposes of whatever's happening at the time. But that, that collapse is, is less less substantive than the, the field out of which it comes. 
Yep. And again, that's there's still a uh, legitimate minority that agree with that, but it's been shrinking. And I would say the view to, by the majority, the vast majority of physicists today is that consciousness is not relevant to that field collapse. And it's just worth keeping in mind that, that most of these quantum questions are fundamentals of physics, where physics meets philosophy, essentially, yes. uh, are less well-defined than many of the people who write about it think they are. Oh, I, like to, I always like to uh, complete keep that out there. No, that's very, very clear. And Richard Feynman said, where's the effect of if you understand quantum mechanics, you don't understand quantum mechanics. Uh, and that, that partly explains the extraordinary uh, range of views held by physicists. You're completely right. Uh, also, quantum mechanics is a bit of a misnomer. As David Bohm suggested, it could better be called unquantum, unmechanics. And uh, so the, the, the field is, is not one in which one can find certainties, which is a rather nice loop back at a matter level. <laughs> Indeed. Okay, let's move on to the next one, where I think we had a truly interesting conversation last time, which was about the nature of consciousness. And I went back and reread our discussion on consciousness. It's in the transcript, as we always provide a good, high-quality transcript on the episode page. And I think we were, to some degree, talking past each other, but I'm not sure. In fact, I, I proposed during the podcast that our differences about what is the na nature of consciousness were definitional. And to recap, my view is that uh, the John Searle view that uh, consciousness is a specifically biological phenomena that evolved at least twice on life on Earth. And it's uh, the essence of a way of being for certain classes of organisms that have the right neuronal support for it to essentially create a movie of which they are the uh, subjective participant in. And it appears to that creature that they are making choices within this movie that impact the world, even though we now know from neuroscience that 99 plus percent of what's going on is happening unconsciously. And it may just be that we have a very short veto window within the, the conscious frame, but that this biological, very specific architectural framework is what consciousness is. And that to talk about other things as consciousness, like, for instance, the integrated information theory of Tononi and Koch, et cetera, where a light switch is, is conscious, uh, for instance, I think is abusing the term consciousness, and we ought to use some other term for it, and that intelligence and consciousness are by no means the same thing. I think you were making a broader argument. So why don't you give your view on, on a broader definition of consciousness? Well, consciousness is one of the hardest things in existence to define. Uh, it's something we all know well because we are in it, but quite what it is, is another matter. So inevitably, in this sort of an area where one's dealing with the fundamental building blocks of reality, it's very hard to be sure of anything. And there's just a range of opinions about it, I guess. My own view is that consciousness can't evolve out of unconsciousness, that it's inconceivable that something that is wholly unconscious can give rise to consciousness. And this leads to a problem of how it originates. And you find, as I think I mentioned, even in the Oxford Handbook of Science, where the editors, V.S. Ramachandran and Colin Blakemore, two very mainstream neuroscientists, say that we may just have to accept that consciousness is a, a an ontological primitive, that it is something that exists 
and it is is part of the constitution of the cosmos, and you can't get behind it and find it coming out of anything at all. It's uh, it's certainly possible. On the other hand, it's also quite possible that uh, consciousness is like Searle, John Searle would say, it's like digestion. It's just a series of biological processes which uh, are actually important for the animal. They're, it's expensive to maintain consciousness, as it turns out. And it is this very specific thing that you can say that something is conscious or not, approximately. Of course, there's always going to be cor- uh, boundary cases. But you know, it's fairly, uh, using the Searle concept, you'd say that a self-driving car is not conscious because it has no architecture to create the sense of a subjective state or Mm. the actor being embedded in a subjective state that's like being the star of your own movie, even though a self-driving car is very intelligent. And in fact, uh, at some point in the future, our self-driving cars will be better drivers than we are and are dealing with an amazing amount of randomness or unpredictability and a game theory, even, and all kinds of things, and they can be very intelligent, but not conscious. Yes, in re- relation to those mechanisms, I, I, I accept that the aggregate is probably not conscious, not in any way that we we would recognize by comparison with our own consciousness. I, uh, but when you talk about unpredictability and the ability to respond to it, I think, again, one needs to distinguish between two things. One is that this particular situation could not have been predicted. And the other is that any situation like this could have been predicted. So it may well be true that it's constantly reacting to things, to sets of circumstances that can't in themselves be predicted. But that doesn't mean that it's essentially making up a response that is intelligent to the situation. It is simply using some form of schematized behavior, which comes into action when some particular set of circumstances is not predictable. I'm trying to make a distinction between this and the ability of organisms to, uh, under certain extraordinary circumstances, which they can be artificially subjected to in a laboratory, making an intelligent response to it for which they couldn't be in any sense programmed, not for that or not for anything like it. So that's a that's a different phenomenon, and I think that organisms, even single cells, have intelligence. Yep, no doubt about that. And again, I think this is a huge, at least in the rut model, <laughs> making a clear distinction between intelligence and consciousness is important to think about them in a straight fashion. Because mm. uh, yes, you can say that cells are very intelligent. Yes, uh, uh, E. coli, which is a very primitive bacteria, the one that lives in our gut, can follow a glucose gradient to move up a slope of increasing sugar. It can also avoid certain kinds of acids that are bad to it, right? How does it do that? It does it chemically, right? Uh, It does not have neurons. It does not have a subjective stage. And so to say that E. coli is conscious, I would say no, but to say E. coli is intelligent, it's a complex adaptive system reacting to stimuli and producing action is intelligent in the same way a self Sorry. Go ahead. What about a situation in which an organism, however primitive, retains memory and learns from experience, including experiences for which there is no way that it could have been prepared or programmed? And one of the, you know, even more striking than E. coli, which is relatively complex, is a slime mold. And a slime mold, you know, can solve a maze. And if you take a piece of the slime mold and break it off, get rid of the rest, the piece will have a memory of how to solve the maze. That's extraordinary to me. 
Although, of course, slime molds are way more advanced than E. coli. They're uh, eukaryotes. They're the uh, the big cells with nuclei, et cetera. Uh, e. coli is a, a prokaryote, so it's a bacteria. Very, it doesn't even have a nucleus. It's extremely simple. Yeah. Uh, but memory is uh, certainly, and memory and ability to learn is certainly not a distinction about consciousness. For instance, self-driving cars can learn. And, uh, and in fact, when I've been thinking about this when I was preparing for this uh, last week, hmm. self-driving cars learn in a strange way, which is, uh, for instance, the Teslas are recording every motion that the driver makes and they're playing their self-driving algorithm in the background and comparing what the algorithm did to what the driver did. And then they're uh, capturing the difference and they're sending it back to Tesla headquarters, which are then processing. And then uh, in the next batch update, they send uh, the learnings from that out to all the software. So instead of one Tesla learning, all the Teslas together are doing a swarm learning. Mm-hmm. And then the computers at the central office are figuring out the commonalities between all these learnings that came from running the self-driving car software in parallel with the human doing the driving yeah. and uh, essentially uh, inform them. So it is a form of learning. It's just not the same architecture that we use. And certainly the next you know, three or four generations out of self-driving cars will probably learn specific things about the routes that they take, et cetera. So there's nothing special about memory. Memory and learning, you know, we have this whole discipline called machine learning, and literally what it does is learn things from interacting with the environment. So I don't think that's a distinction that gets you to consciousness. No, I, I, I agree that memory is not peculiar to to a, a living organism, but the, the, uh, the fact that a slime mold, you can cut a piece off and it will have the memory, uh, suggests it's somewhat different from a car. You wouldn't expect one of the doors or the wheels to have the memory that the whole thing has, because it has to have that co- coherent system that is with which it is programmed. But the, the cell doesn't have any such system that, with which it's programmed. As you know, DNA contains very little information. Yeah, certainly does not, as, as we talked about last time, and this is, again, something most people don't seem to know, is DNA is not a blueprint, right? It does not say, Absolutely. you know, put five fingers on the end of an arm. It, no. It's a whole series of, of lower-level processes which emergently result in, which is a very important distinction. Mm. And it's what makes life, at least so far, different than any human-engineered device. Yeah. In that, you know, human devices, even very, very complicated ones, like a nuclear power plant or a 7 can be decomposed into understandable components and yes. put, take it apart and put back together again. You literally cannot take a, a cell apart and put it back together again and expect no. it to work because it's a, it's a series of unbelievably complicated processes. And DNA just defines some relatively low-level components of those processes. And yes. it's that interaction which then emerges to produce the behavior of the cell and then the organism. Is it sometimes formulated as the difference between a complicated system and a complex system. Exactly. That's a language I use quite a bit. Dave Snowden uses that language quite a bit. It's another very good mm. thinker uh, in this domain, which I, well, we've had him on the podcast as well, and he's, uh, he's a good guy. Now, you also talk about life having this similar attribute to consciousness. And I, I make the argument the other way, which is consciousness is like life. We now understand life well enough to know there's no magic there and that it emerged from biochemistry and biochemistry emerged from physical chemistry and physical chemistry emerged from physics. But you make, I think, a little different argument that life may be stranger than I think and that it may be more innate to the universe in some sense. Well, it's 
it's just um, very difficult to see how you can make an argument that consciousness emerges from biochemistry, which I think you were suggesting. It, it just doesn't seem to me that it's got much, uh, much uh, power to convince how. Nobody has the slightest idea how that could happen which is why the view that it's an ontological primitive avoids that, that problem effectively. Yeah, what I was arguing there was that life emerged from biochemistry and then, then consciousness emerged from life via Darwinian evolution, uh, which I think is a somewhat different argument. It is a different argument, but it, it also includes the idea that consciousness emerges. And I think using the word emerge in those circumstances is a way of saying, and now a miracle happens. Or, or I might say, and we don't quite understand what happened. You know, the, the science of emergence, complexity science is a brand new science. It's really only about yeah. 35 years old. And it is true that emergence is pointing at, and we don't really understand what happened here, but we do have a sense that lower level things interacted together to produce a higher level thing, which was not easily predictable from the nature of the lower level thing. Yeah. You know, for instance, if you looked at a at you know tubs full of carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, and the other little trace elements, to imagine that's you or me it would be a gigantic leap of imagination that, yeah. that nobody is really capable of doing. But somehow life emerged from these single cells to multi cells to uh, complicated creatures to animals to uh, you know bigger creatures, yeah. food chains, and you know the word we use for that in the complexity field is emergence. Do we understand what how emergence really works? No, but I think we we can point to it as something that, that least seems to have happened. Yes, there are, of course, complex systems in the inanimate world as well as the living world. So I, I don't actually make a hard and fast distinction between the inanimate and the animate. I think that the animate is a difference of degree, a massive difference of degree, but still a difference of degree rather than a difference of kind. And what is it a difference of degree in? Well, first of all, speed of, of development. So things that would take billions of years might, in the case of a living organism, take a second or less. So it speeds things up. It speeds the what develops within the system up. And the other thing, I think, is that it increases the responsive nature of whatever it is that, it, that emerges. Inanimate substances are much less responsive to the circumstances than living ones are. So those are the two important distinctions in my mind between animacy and inanimacy, but there isn't really a hard line, which, which makes it easier for me to argue that consciousness is not confined to living things, but is a constituent of the cosmos. It may be manifested in entirely different ways in different parts, and it may be virtually absent in very much of the universe, but it it, it can't be something that emerged out of matter unless like me, you take matter to be a complex thing that is absolutely unknown, like consciousness. I mean, a lot of physicists say it's a mistake for biologists to imagine they can explain consciousness by saying, well, it emerges from matter. That's a hangover from about 100 years ago when people thought they understood matter directly and could model consciousness on something that emerged from it. But now physicists are as much at a loss to tell us what matter is as to tell us what consciousness is. Yeah, which is actually true at the microscopic scale. The, you know exactly how energy and matter convert from one to the other, and when you start looking at an atom very, very closely, it's not nearly as simple as our old uh, high school chemistry. No, but again, this comes back to my 
my main critique is that scale matters. And while yeah. deciding what matter is like at the level of an atom or a molecule becomes more murky the closer you get, when you get aggregate behaviors, more does matter. When you get, you know, my coffee cup here, which I'm holding up, we can predict very high level. And even at the scale of organic chemistry, there are the fact that we can't understand what's going on inside of an atom doesn't mean we can't understand reasonably well what's going on at the level of organic chemistry. And so the question is, do these, emer- these new, emer- the whole idea of emergence is it produces a new layer in which interactions occur and that the details of the lower level no longer become significant. So that the fact that what, what an atom is exactly and what exactly an electron is actually doesn't turn out to matter much with respect to how organic chemicals interact with each other when they are emergent aggregates of these fundamental particles. And yeah. that goes all the way up the stack. And I think that's a really important distinction that allows us to, I keep saying, not worry much about these, you know, these deep issues because emergence has produced higher level phenomena that we interact with at our scale. Yes. You'll probably remember that in chapter 27, I have a section called Scale Matters, in which I deal with precisely the problem of why um, we make mistakes when we don't realize that scale does matter. And I talk a bit about the very interesting to me theories of Mike Abramovitz, which also depends on the idea of differences of scale. But while there are obviously... We, we know what we mean by an emergent property. For example, the fluid and slippery notion of water can be said to emerge from the structure of hydrogen and oxygen as formed together to make water molecules. So that's not that's a, an example of where emergence is, is, is proper to speak of because there is a property at the lower level in view of which and in view of which alone it is enough to be able to predict at some higher level of complexity that there will be appreciation of a certain characteristic. But emergence can't be used when there is no such element. And this is the problem with consciousness, that there is no sort of little bit of consciousness or foreshadowing of consciousness, or as William James says, nascent consciousness. It doesn't have a meaning. So we can't really use this argument Unless all we're doing is black boxing a difficult area, and as I say, waving our hands and going, a miracle happens here. <laughs> I think we talked about this a little bit. The you know, study of non-human consciousness on our tree takes us back at least as far as the amphibians, where absolutely there may be just a very rudimentary consciousness. I think I described the fact that people who've looked into it believe that like a frog has extremely rudimentary consciousness, which essentially is like a a very primitive 1982 computer screen (laughs) with black things moving around on the screen. And its consciousness is basically saying, is that a fly or not? That's close enough for me to stick my tongue out. And if you take a paper cut out of a, of a fly and make it three times bigger and hold it three times further away than the length of its tongue, the uh, simple-minded frog will flick at it anyway. And that level of consciousness is obviously useful to help a frog eat flies. And so this, this is like the idea of eyes. Eyes have evolved like a dozen times in, in various lineages. And the argument there is, how could something as complicated as an eye, very expensive, how could that investment make sense? The argument is that, you know, an eye that can, or a very simple photoreceptor that can tell the difference between darkness and lightness itself is useful, and that every step along the way was also useful, plus or minus a small amount of room for randomness. 
And, you know, there's, I, I don't see any reason that it couldn't be true. I won't say that it has to be true, that consciousness couldn't have bootstrapped the same way from very rudimentary consciousness that just is, a, you know, a 1982, very primitive homemade computer game to allow frogs to catch flies better to, uh, you know, step at a time, gradually evolve to what we have today. Well, the bit that I agree with there, you will not be surprised to learn, is that I believe frogs are conscious. Certainly, I, I believe that certain plants are conscious, perhaps all plants are conscious, in fact. So it's not a problem about that, but it, I, I don't buy the metaphor of the computer screen, and, and I don't buy the comparison with the emergence of the eye. The problem with the emergence of eye is a different problem, I think. As Simon Conway Morris suggests that it's, it's probably emerged 12 times separately, it, it is a, a remarkable fact that there, ha- there was time for what needed to happen to come together to make an eye to make an eye, but it's not as though the ability to uh, create an eye is a piece of magic when compared with what it's actually emerged from, whereas consciousness, I keep saying, is a different phenomenon altogether. It's not just very complex like an eye or or complicated like an eye, but it is something that is that its essence is foreign to unconscious whatever. So unconsciousness or the lack of consciousness can't be remedied by saying that you can get two consciousness out of it, whereas you can say that an eye came out of various components that you could imagine at a simple level just becoming more and more complex, as as you suggest. So uh, I don't think they parallel arguments. I think we're just going to have to agree to disagree on this one. And we could probably talk for, about consciousness for five days, but I don't want to do what we did last time is get too bogged down to it. Let's go on to the, a, another topic, which I thought you did a really interesting job of and has left me thinking. I don't know what to think, but I certainly made me think. And that's the section on what is purpose? Hmm. Yeah. Well, what can I say briefly about this? I think that one of the things one needs to clear out of the way is the idea of purpose as a predetermined plan that some engineering force, possibly God or something of the kind, makes happen. And that's certainly not what I mean. In fact, the idea of a a predictable control system oiled and set in motion by an engineer is exactly the way in which I believe the left hemisphere would think about it because this is its great skill is putting things together for utility. So it tends to think everything is like that, including living organisms, which I argue earlier in the book that they're not. So what can we say about purpose? We, I think it's almost absurd to be reduced to the state of having to say a a turtle comes ashore and lays its eggs rather than a turtle comes ashore to lay its eggs, which is the sort of problem you get into if you deny any kind of purpose. And I think that an enormous number of biologists accept that there is purpose. They don't want to say so in public in case they're accused of bringing in an engineering god, but that doesn't have to happen at all. There needs only to be a tendency in the universe, and there are tendencies, I think, towards greater complexity, towards beauty, that are, and just to further the business of life itself, that are hard to understand unless you have some idea of a purpose. Perhaps I could just gloss purpose in relation to a game. So James Cass has a distinction between 
finite games and infinite games. A finite game is a game that's played because there is a goal to this game, which is, as it were, to pot all the billiard balls and and win. <laughs> but there are other games in life which are absolutely not pointless or purposeless, but don't have any interior purpose. What is the purpose of playing music? What is the purpose of a play? It, it It's not something external that is that it has utilitarian value in reaching it's that the process itself is the purpose and the continuing of it infinitely would be a fulfillment of that purpose so it's quite different from the finite situation in which you're closing down on one particular outcome yeah you make another very nice distinction with respect to purposes between intrinsic purposes and extrinsic purposes yes which is similar, really, to what I'm saying, because the infinite games have intrinsic purpose, whereas the, the finite games have extrinsic purpose. They, they have a goal that's definable. And, and the, 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 purpose, the purpose of the system is only fulfilled once it reaches that particular goal, whereas many purposes are not of that nature. They don't have to have reached a certain point or certain goal but their purpose lies within them. And when you come to think of animals, I think this is rather important because the the tendency is to think that somehow the purpose of living is to pass on life. Well, it depends how you think of that. If you think of life as a celebratory entity that we don't understand, that we are part of and wish to continue being in and to continue making, then yes, but not in the sense that it's purpose of life is to propagate your genes by copulation. This is to reduce things to an almost absurd level. And as I mentioned last time, I used the white-tailed deer as my thought animal. Oh, yes, you uh, did. Studying yes. it for 50 years as a deer hunter. And one of the interesting things about it is the fish and game scientists have published vast amounts on their behavior. So it's a tremendous amount of literature. And I'm going to use the white-tailed deer to think about this because uh, this is where I'm just trying to get my head around the idea. I think you're onto something here which is at one level, because of the way Darwinian evolution works, evolution is selecting for deer that are successful to reproduce and pass on its genes. You know, the, the bucks with the big antlers dominate the sex. You know, one deer gets to mate with all the does. One, one buck gets to meet with all the does. Everybody else sits there and waits their time for a few years till the old guy dies off. But and so it's a macro level evolutionary's purpose is to reproduce and have more. But the deer himself, as he lives day to day, he has purposes like, I'm hungry. I need to move from where I am to a place where I think there might be better food, right? And he has a purpose, has got kind of a lower level purpose that informs his movement or her movement that day. And uh, I am thirsty. Oh yeah, there's a pond back over here. But to get there, I have to cross the road. That could be dangerous, but there's another route that if I go this way, it's further and I can still get to the water. And then literally the deers do seem to know whether it's hunting season or not. And if it's hunting season, they'll take the long way around. If it's not hunting season, they'll cross the road. And those are purposes. I think those are purposes in your sense. Maybe you could talk about the you know, kind of the different scales of purpose uh, that an animal might have. Well, that's definitely part of it. I believe there are different levels of purpose. And in, in one sense, you can say a daily purpose might be to get food and no longer be hungry. But that is not to exhaust the purposes of an animal. And it seems unsatisfactory to say that the purpose of the animal is just to make other 
animals like itself. It seems more that there must be something purposeful about being a deer, that it demonstrates one of the ways in which the verb to be can be inflected. It, it creates a much richer idea of what it means to be, and that seems to me close to the purpose of an animal, that a lioness is not just killing and eating, which is certainly a, a daily purpose, and not just producing more lioness cubs or lion cubs, but actually just being the lion is the purpose of a lion. Yeah, and you know, deer play, for instance. It's quite interesting to watch them play. Yes. Particularly young ones, but occasionally older ones will get up and stand on their hind legs and box with each other in kind of a playful way. Yeah. And I would say that part of the being of a white-tailed deer, at least for those who appreciate them, is we find them beautiful as well. There's something about their form that's really quite elegant, the colorings, the shape, exactly. their athleticism, and all that. But is that a purpose? I guess a purpose from what perspective? What's the perspective of the purpose of the, the deer who plays and the deer that is beautiful? Well, obviously not a utilitarian purpose, and that's why I begin by differentiating intrinsic purposes from manipulation that reaches a certain goal at a low level and at a utilitarian level and as an external extrinsic purpose. So there seems to be something about the way evolution works that is not just about creating a creature that can last longer, has better survival power, because there are, for example, actinobacteria at the bottom of the sea, single examples of which may be a million years old. Human beings do rather poorly in this competition <laughs> because we live to be only 70 years old and trees can live to be a thousand years old. But as you get more complex, you find that actually the survival value of the individual and even its ability to propagate many examples of itself may be diminishing. So it, it seems to me that the idea of fitness must encourage us to think in terms of something other than mere mathematically calculable survival. Yeah. Now let's uh, jump ahead a little bit here because we're closely related. And again, it's an area that I could really use some help in thinking through because I think you're onto something, but I'm not quite sure what, even after reading the book. Uh, and that is you use the word teleology. And as you know, that causes a knee-jerk reaction in many scientists God, you're using teleology, bad, down boy, down. Yeah. And uh, I did a little Googling around on it, and I, I did find the Catholic Dictionary defines teleology. And this is the official Catholic Dictionary. Amazing that they have their own dictionary. The doctrine that there is purpose for finality in the world, that nothing ever happens merely by chance, and that no complete account of the universe is possible without final reference to an all-wise God. I'm quite sure that's not what you mean. No. <laughs> so if take it slowly here, because I think this is a very interesting word, and uh, some very important thinkers have used it, but I don't think anybody much understands it. But I think you're maybe, maybe made more progress than some. So give us your thoughts on uh, what it means when you say teleology. Well, the definition you came up with is what you get for going to the Catholic dictionary. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I intentionally picked that, of course, to be an extreme definition, right? <laughs> But, you know, I quote from Darwin himself as saying that what, what people had realized in his work and was most important was that he reconciled morphology with teleology. And that was also the argument of T.H. Huxley, Darwin's so-called bulldog. So they, I think, what I think Darwin meant was exactly what I'm trying to convey, which is not a deterministic 
thing that there is a purpose in the sense of to make something that we know in advance what it is and we know why we're making it. But there is a tendency for certain outcomes to be more, to be achievable, which can't be achieved without a movement in a certain direction. And by by taking steps to be in a certain place or a certain space, certain things might happen, but you can't in any way specify when or what they might be. I mean, I give the, the example of somebody who wants to marry. You can't just purpose to marry and go out and, and find somebody and do it, but you can put yourself in the way of finding somebody to marry, or you can make your life such that you certainly never will find anyone to marry. So in that sense, there is a purpose but it's not a purpose that is anything more than a desire of the person and you cannot specify how exactly to achieve it or when or where it will be achieved if it is achieved. Yeah, and say for instance, you know, a kid decides he wants to go to college, so he better do good in his studies versus a kid who makes a decision early in life not to go to college. I remember making that decision when I was in ninth grade and it quite did change my behavior that uh, in that regard. Hmm. No. Is that an example of uh, what you mean by a teleology is a created goal that changes behavior in a systematic fashion? Yes. I mean, it would be an overarching purpose. It couldn't be summed up in a certain sentence in the way that, well, it might be able to be summed up in a sentence, but it would be a very, it would have a very broad reference because we're not here talking about a specific outcome of an event. We're talking about a general drive. And in you, there was obviously a drive to knowledge and understanding, because that seems to be how you've spent your life. And as we remember, we're exactly the same age. So that's good news for both of us. But, but, but what you, what you saw was that there was another way of achieving this. And so you, you were drawn forward by that concept of a purpose. I think a distinction I'd like to make is between a purpose which is mechanically produced from behind in which steps propel you like a mechanism into a certain state and a purpose that draws you from in front. So an ideal or a tendency that draws you towards the circumstances to be fulfilled. Hmm. Now let's drill into that. I can talk my, my own personal history here might actually be an interesting platform. And I grew up in a uh, fairly rough working class community where I would say half the adults were high school dropouts and uh, most of them worked in the construction trades or in things like printing or baking, you know, uh, the higher end manual trades, et cetera. And, you know, I was seriously considered going into carpentry. I always enjoyed that. But I was also a book reader, and my parents were book readers also, even though my father dropped out of high school after ninth grade, and my mother was a high school grad, so we were about the, the average 50% high school grad rate in our household. But they both were big readers, and I started reading voraciously from a young age, and I'm fairly convinced that books is what was drew me forward, if you want to call that yeah. the thing that drew me. as if The push, I would have become a carpenter probably, right? Yeah, that's lovely. But yeah. considering an honorable trade in my family and my neighborhood and would have made a good living in those days. And But somehow having read all these books, particularly science fiction mm. and then and science books, somehow drew me on a completely different trajectory. Yes, yes. Uh, that's a, a lovely example of what I'm I'm meaning that um, you, you don't take certain steps in a in a narrowly determined way, but you see a goal towards which you are drawn. And that's the meaning in which I would use the concept of teleology, that there's something that draws us forward as a form that is attractive. 
And we know that there are in physics form fields that are attractive. So why there shouldn't be in relation to biology, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't know. Well, I mean, I'm going to put a little challenge to you. Can we frame something about the life of a deer in 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 the framework of teleology? Well, I'd be repeating myself, really, but um, what I'm drawing attention to is that animals and humans and plants and so on don't just exist in order to anything in the sense of there is a, a scheme here and they must follow certain paths, but that they, they fulfill something which is in itself an end, a goal, a purpose, and therefore could be seen teleologically, which is a purpose of the wider field of life and ultimately wider than that of the nature of the cosmos because the cosmos is such that life can emerge from it. There is no two ways about that. Whatever it is, it is a fascinating thing that out of this cosmos that some people think is completely pointless, completely purposeless, random, chaotic, fragmentary, and so on, that out of this cosmos can come something as amazing as Bach's St. Matthew Passion. I mean, there's no, there's no questioning the fact that it has emerged from it. So then we have what, which qualities in that thing can emerge. But to come back to your deer, the deer is in a way like a poem or like a, a piece of music. It is a, a phenomenon that is itself a fulfillment of something that is vital and beautiful and, and complex. And to your point you were getting at, let's go down this road a little bit. It is obvious because it exists that the capacity of the universe allows for white-tailed deer, right? Yeah. <laughs> and all their behavior and et cetera, because yes. they exist. So therefore, the capacity for the universe to support white-tailed deer is a given. But what does that actually mean does it, you know what it very definitely doesn't mean is that the cosmos had in it any kind of idea of a white deer or a, a, an extrinsic purpose to create a white deer it's not like that i keep coming back to the idea that our left hemisphere dominated way of thinking images everything in the end as a machine produced by a machine maker even if the ma machine maker is certainly not a god. So, for example, Richard Dawkins calls himself a paleite, but a paleite without a god. But it's that paleiteness that matters to me, because really what, what that is saying is this thing must have been designed in some way. And I'm not saying it, it was designed directly. I'm just saying that the possibility of something was not ruled out. So there is a negative potential or a negative possibility, which is that such a thing is not ruled out by existence, but it's not ruled in either. So what actually exists is something that couldn't be precisely foreseen. I don't believe that, the, that you know, however much we examine the state of the universe at some point in the past, we could have predicted the white-tailed deer or you, Jim. So I think that <laughs> these are things that exemplify the potential within the cosmos. And I think this idea of potential is very interesting because we make an assumption that only what is actualized has value, whereas I think that potential has extraordinary value, maybe even more value than what is actualized. And, you know, the universe has many, many paths which have not been explored but could have been. Yes. Uh, you know, Stephen Jay Gould fam famously said, if we replayed the tape of evolution a million times from 3.5 billion years ago, 
he says, and this is a direct quote, and I doubt that anything like Homo sapiens would have ever evolved again. Well, he might be right. <laughs> Since it's an experiment we can't carry out, I don't know. But as, as you know, my broad conclusion is in agreement with that, that no one particular outcome could be predicted. However, that nothing like is a further step. And we've seen that certain things seem to be so important that they do evolve, the eye being a perfect example. Because if it can be evolved 12 times separately, there seems to be something important about an eye. And it probably would come up again in if we replayed the tape of evolution or set things back 3.5 billion years and started it over again. I'd put some money on whatever evolved having eyes. Yep, I think it's probably a pretty good bet for, as you said, it's been done 12 or 13 times, obviously has value for survival. Yeah. At the end of the day, that is the cash account for Darwinism. And uh, so, yeah, that, but on the other hand, would it have, I mean, it may have evolved from an animal more like a raccoon than like a monkey, right, for instance, which would make it very different. And, uh, no, or it may have been waterborne yeah, and yeah. Uh, such. And then, of course, then the question is, and this is a, a really interesting question and one that I think the world does not really know the answer to, though there's some thinking about it, which there does seem to be, maybe this is a teleology-ish thing, a drive towards increased complexity in life. Yes. You know, it started off tiny and simple and has gotten more and more complicated though it's, and more complex. So it's also important to realize that there's, it also sometimes moves the other way. Some forms of life have gotten simpler. For instance, the parasites in your stomach no longer can do a lot of metabolism that their ancestors could because they don't need to. They just hijack the stuff in your stomach. Yeah. But this drive towards complexity overlaid with the idea of playing the tape again probably says we end up with some pretty complex things that are fairly smart, but they may not be at all like humans. Yeah, that, that, that's perfectly possible. As I say, it's one we can't confirm or, or deny, really. But Yes, I, uh, on your point that things may get less complex, something that seems to me rather interesting is that domesticated animals have smaller brains than their wild counterparts. And you put that together with the fact that modern Homo sapiens has a smaller brain than Homo heidelbergensis had. There may be something about living in this protected way that we do, which actually decreases <laughs> our neuronal complexity and perhaps our intelligence. Yeah, I actually looked that up, that question up yesterday. Even Homo sapiens himself has lost somewhere between 10 and 20% of his neuronal count in the last 40,000 years. That was right about the time that we've started to be able to create culture and advanced tools. Yeah. And so getting smarter actually, and some said, so we don't need so many neurons so that the yeah. problems of being birthed, for instance, <laughs> yeah. we can give up 10% of our neurons. And even in the last 3,000 years have been a measurable but not as large, uh, decline in the number of neurons the uh, archaeologists now believe, which is quite interesting. And so uh, anthropologists describe that effect as the self-domestication of humans. Yep, yep, yep. Which is kind of interesting. Right, I'm going to skip over this and that. Uh, let's go on to, oh yeah, let's go back to this idea of the universe and our place in it. There's Two theories, there's other variants of these, but two main theories are the so-called the weak anthropic principle and the strong anthropic principle. Because as you talk about in the book, the universe is very fine-tuned in terms of its fundamental parameters or what we think of as fundamental. They're probably not, but that's far down as we've been able to drill into the nature of the universe, that if the weak force was slightly different, biochemistry wouldn't be possible. If G, the universal gravitational constant, were different, stars would not form, et cetera. Yeah. And so 
seemingly the weak anthropic principle, which is we find ourselves in a universe in which it's tuned correctly for life like us, is obviously true. Now, then some people take it to a further argument, which is, and that's because of selection effect, that there's many, 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 many universes, and we just happen to be in one that worked for us. Yeah. And then the other version is the so-called strong anthropic principle, where some external forces is literally an extrinsic power uh, set the settings in such a way that eventually this complex system from, from, let's call it, 13 fundamental numbers set right was an open enough game with enough freedom to eventually lead to something interesting like Homo sapiens. Do you have any view on thinking around weak anthropic principle, strong anthropic principle, or some of the other alternatives that have been proposed on how it is we find ourselves in a universe with the right settings? Well, I would come back to, I, I don't find the solution that there'd have to be an infinite number of universes very intellectually satisfying. <laughs> it's really saying, search me, um, I've no idea, let's just do it a million, a billion infinite number of times because an infinite number is such that the universe would have to be created, not only this universe, but this universe exactly an infinite number of times and so on. Once you start introducing this concept of infinity, statements about it mean nothing effectively. So you haven't really resolved the problem, you've just turned it into nonsense. And I think I quote there that, there are, I think, 10 to the 80 subatomic particles in the observable universe. But Lee Smolin uh, says that just to get to a universe with stars is one chance in 10 to the 229. And I quote Eugene Koonin, again, a, a mainstream uh, scientist, who makes the point that to get to a transcription system such as RNA is, is a chance of one in 10 to the 1,018, which is a completely unimaginable number, what one's really doing is throwing one's hands up in despair and saying, I can't explain this. So it must be that there is an infinite number of universes. But another way of looking at it is that the universe is such that it has tendencies, which, as it were, put their hands in the scale and make certain outcomes more common. That doesn't have to be any conventionally imagined God, like a, an old man with a beard fiddling with a computer, but it might be that however this universe comes into being, and nobody knows that and nobody ever will, it contains within it the potential for these things to happen. What does that mean? I mean, I'm trying to get my. It obviously does have within it the potential for it to happen. You know, a reductionist argument, at least an argument that starts with reductionism and then lays on complexity, is that the parameters were set right, which was a playing field that allowed eventually things to occur that eventually led to us. But the the question about how those 13 parameters or whatever number it is were set doesn't go still away. remains entirely unanswered. Exactly. I mean, that problem doesn't go away. In the, in the book, I also make some comments about the ways in which our theories about how things happen for a, a neuropsychiatrist mimic various conditions the human brain can find itself in. So I, I, I deal with the many worlds idea that whenever there is an action, the universe splits in two and two different outcomes become possible. But of course, this is another example of something that means nothing because if every single time any 
action took place. First of all, what is an action? Is it the movement of, a, of an atomic particle? And if so, how many universes have to be created at that moment to accommodate all the possible outcomes? You're back at effectively infinity. So it's not logically or rationally or intellectually satisfying as an answer. But it does look awfully like something that happens to people when they have right hemisphere damage, which is they start to see things exactly like that. Patients report things like, uh, I have an idea that when I, there was a moment when I either clean my teeth or I don't, and in one universe I do and in another I don't. And this is not a philosopher. This is actually, I think, a schizophrenic patient. And schizophrenic subjects have a very similar phenomenological world to those who have right hemisphere damage. That to me is interesting because earlier on in the book, I've suggested throughout the whole of part one that whatever measure you look at for the ability to give us veridical information that we can rely on in our interactions with the world, the right hemisphere is superior to the left, very largely so. Yeah, very, uh, very interesting. Yeah, the I'm with you actually. Whenever I hear a, a theory that requires infinity, I just say no. And frankly, it's just on aesthetic grounds because <laughs> yeah. if, if you take true infinity, everything that could possibly allowably happen in the universe did happen an infinite number of times, including weird shit like Boltzmann brains. And I love to talk about. I talk, say, don't ever think about Boltzmann brains while doing LSD, or you will go insane. <laughs> The, so if you're listening to LS, if you're on LSD right now, please turn off the podcast. Uh, the idea of a Boltzmann brain is that a random quantum fluctuation can bring into existence at random a brain powerful enough to simulate the universe that we can see as the visible universe, you know, which is goes back 13.6 billion years and is about yay big. And it's very, 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 very big, but it's far from infinite, right? And so uh, in an infinite universe, we'd have an infinite number of Boltzmann brains, each of which is enough, powerful enough to simulate with a computer simulation, our whole universe, and plus every small difference between the exact same universe and one subtly different. So my take from that is the concept of infinity in the physical world is absurd, just get rid of it. That doesn't mean it's not possible. Just because I don't like it on aesthetic grounds doesn't mean it's logically impossible. It turns out to be logically possible. But I just choose to reject any infinity-based uh, arguments on aesthetic grounds. But we get to things like multiverse, even the quantum multiverse, which produces a ridiculously large number of universes. It's not infinite. It's very, 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 very large. And very, 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 very large is qualitatively different from infinite. Yeah. Uh, so while I I don't really love the uh, quantum multiverse, it, it has not been ruled out. And some extremely smart people like Sean Carroll uh, championing it very strongly. And in fact, if anything, it seems to be growing in popularity among physicists at the moment. Maybe that's the case. To predict which way physics is going would be a foolish thing for anyone to try. Um, and there is no way that uh, most of these enormously speculative theories can be either validated or invalidated, certainly not during our lifetime. But I think I would support your idea of rejecting an argument that requires infinity because it does actually stop us from reasoning. And I suppose the, the reason we do think about these things is to see which outcomes would be more reasonable. And I think if you, if you espouse 
ones that require infinity, you're already throwing up your hands and saying, I really don't like pursuing this and I'm, not, I'm going to go away, which is fair enough. But don't think you've said anything profound. You haven't. You've just said, uh, I'm going to play the infinity card. And of course, nobody can argue one way or the other with that. It's just like sort of yeah, truthfully, I- pressing the off button, really. <laughs> And you point out, actually, that playing the infinity card is not dissimilar from playing the the guy with the beard in the cloud card, right? Exactly. It's essentially logically equivalent. It is logically equivalent. We don't know, so we're going to make up something yeah, right? yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That, can, that can do whatever we want. All right, this has been a very interesting conversation. We still didn't get to everything on my list, but I want to exit here with two questions that I'm really interested in your thoughts. You know, as I take away from reading the book is that there is a sense that the universe is is pregnant, the right fertile for life at some level, and then for consciousness. And what that means exactly, you confess, you don't know, and I certainly don't know. But it's somehow the potentia, I think, is the word you use, is there in our universe. So regular listeners can predict what my question. I promise you, I was going to ask you a left field question. I'd love to hear you. I didn't tell you what it was. So I didn't give you a chance to prepare, but my audience will know what probably this is. One of my obsessions is the Fermi paradox. The Fermi paradox being that Enrico Fermi, when he was out at Los Alamos during World War II working on an atomic bomb, there was a table full of young physicists speculating about how many alien intelligent species there were in the universe and they were, oh, 100,000, millions. And Fermi came up to him and said, well, where are they? Right? And that's called the Fermi paradox. If there's lots and lots of intelligent species out in the universe, how come we haven't seen any? Certainly many of them are likely to be older than us and have accomplished much more than us. So with your, with your idea of potentia for life and in consciousness sort of being implicit in the universe, what does that lens Tell us, if anything, about are there other, is there other advanced forms of life and specifically advanced forms of consciousness out there somewhere? Does does your lens give you something to say about that question? Well, yes. Uh, First of all, the fact that we don't see it is not necessarily, of course, an argument that it doesn't exist, especially if the universe is very large and the people are in, intelligent enough to stay put uh, where they are. Uh, I don't know. Then there are, of course, people who would say, uh, just as an incidental comment, that they ha- have met these creatures. I mean, of course, I, I rather doubt it, but there you are. No, the important point is that for the universe to be, as it were, propitious to life doesn't mean that it has to be propitious to life everywhere. In fact, the universe, the size of the universe is sometimes used by people to suggest that life was uh, hardly something that could be in potentia or, or, or could have been in any way predicted because there's the, the rest of the universe, as far as we know it, and of course we don't know much about it, it looks very different and doesn't look as though it does support life. But the point um, that was made by John Pokinghorn is that the universe is exactly the right size for there to be one planet on which life could arise because after all we are talking about an enormous number of things happening to come together. So the, the, the fact that there is a place where there is life confirms that there is that in potential in the cosmos, but it doesn't have anything really to say about other aliens or uh, there may or may not be. I have no idea. 
Yeah, it's interesting. The so-called Drake equation is what the people use who study uh, search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And uh, one of the key questions, one of the key terms in the polynomial, or actually it's a series, is uh, it's a product, actually, think about it, is what's the probability of life emerging in a planet like Earth, right? Because part of the other terms are how likely are planets like Earth to exist. We now know, which we did not know 40 years ago, that planets like Earth are common in the universe. There's many, many, many of them fairly close to us. And so the, one of the questions in this question of the Fermi paradox and the search for extraterrestrial intelligence is, what's the probability of life emerging? And there are arguments that say it is so improbable that only happened once. We know it happened once. And then there are others like Stuart Kaufman who will say that autocatalytic networks that will then reduce, produce autopoiesis, which is a self-replicating set of chemistry, uh, will inevitably lead to life. And you know, Stuart would expect there to be at least primitive life on you know a large percentage of Earth-like planets that are around Earth-like stars. And then there's the arguments that all right, let's say you get to the equivalent of bacteria. How hard is the road up? You know, how unlikely was the Cambrian explosion that led to multicellularity or even moving from bacteria to eukaryotes where we had nucleus? You know, so many questions we don't know. But it does, you know, I don't know. Like, I guess when I, after reading your book, I'm one of these ones, you, as a 12-year-old nerd, I was sure the universe was full of intelligences, right? Otherwise, why would all these Heinlein and Asimov science fiction books exist, right? But as I've gotten older and wiser, especially as I learn more about complexity and probability, I've become agnostic on the question and say, we just don't know. And there's no. great books that argue at great, great lengths both ways. But I would say reading your book made me think, hmm, uh, I think, I think that your idea of potentia is a pointer towards more likely than less likely. Because if the universe really does have a strong tendency towards life and consciousness, then the, the chemistry arguments actually get some reinforcement from the teleology, I guess I would say. Well, I, as you know, I don't believe that consciousness is necessarily confined to life. I think it's a building block of the cosmos. So, But generally speaking, I agree with you. There is no way to answer these questions, and they form a harmless way for people to pass their time. I prefer to do cryptic crosswords myself, but you know, we can't get <laughs> the final answer to any of these questions. But what I hope in the book is to show tendencies in the way we think and how, they, how we can, for the first time in the history of philosophy, find two different ways of thinking about something and not just go, well, People have argued this and they've argued that and there's no way to resolve it. That's just the way it is. When we're dealing with most of the problems of philosophy that aren't concerned with something like the exact uh, nature and state of the cosmos, you can actually discriminate. You can say, look, this argument is typical of how the left hemisphere would guide our thinking. This argument is more like the way the right hemisphere would guide our thinking. And we can see that the way that the right hemisphere guides the thinking is more veridical than the other. This doesn't involve us having a third hemisphere or something from which to judge the first two. It's quite simple. <laughs> the, the, the test is following which path are we more likely to be taken by surprise, by experience. So, for example, a famous, I have a whole chapter on paradox, as you probably know, and take a very famous paradox, the Achilles and the tortoise paradox, in which by breaking down space and time to slices, the tortoise can convince itself that Achilles can never catch up with him, never mind overtake him, which is a very um, amusing way of thinking of time and space. But what it actually demonstrates is that 
cutting it up into slices leads you to false conclusions, like that Achilles can't overtake the tortoise. And if you go around the world thinking like that, you're going to be very, very sadly mistaken. Great. Well, you know what? Let's. I had one more question, but let's wrap it here. I think we reached the time that we yeah. agreed to, and I think it's been a very interesting conversation, and that's Ian McGilchrist and the book, The Matter With Things. It is just such an interesting book. I, you know, I just really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed our conversation. It's been great to get exposed to a mind that's capable of this broad of thought about our universe and our place in it. Well, thanks very much, Jim. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.